I uh, heard a story of uh, a gentleman at a church one time who uh, got up to deliver the call to worship, and he got up in front of the congregation and said, the Lord has spoken a word to me today, and I'm going to share that word with you. And uh, the church, the, the pastors of the church kind of got a little bit nervous, didn't know that was coming, didn't expect that. And then the man said, the word that the Lord spoke to me came from the book of Isaiah. If you would turn with me to Isaiah, uh, recognizing the fact that when we read God's word, he is speaking to us. And there are many people out there who desire to hear a direct word from the Lord, who desire to have uh, the Lord speaking to them in a way that is, uh, that is so special and so unique among other Christians. And yet, uh, in thinking this way, so often we forsake the fact that uh, God has spoken and has spoken directly to us and has done so in his word. And so today as we come to his word, we come to Hebrews chapter 7 to see what it is that God has spoken to us. Hebrews chapter 7, we will be in verses 1 through 10. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a and, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, the king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. You can all be seated. Our passage today presents for us um, an interesting and very profound and one of the most important pictures of typology that we have in the scriptures. Now, you know, might, might not be familiar with this term typology. It is a term uh, referring to a specific study, a specific area within theology, within the study of God and of his word, that looks at types in the Old Testament and finding their fullness or what it is that they point to and represent fulfilled in the New Testament. Namely, in typology, what we oftentimes see is we see in Old Testament figures types or foreshadowings or pointers to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. 
And we can think of various examples of this. There are, are a number of, of characters that we could point to in the Old Testament as typological of Jesus Christ. One of the uh, most profound ones being Joseph. Um, if you are familiar with the story of Joseph, it largely uh, and very profoundly points us to the Messiah where Joseph was a man who was betrayed by his brothers and after being betrayed by his brothers was cast into a pit but was pulled out of that pit and was ultimately placed in a place of authority. And through Joseph, what happened? The entire nation was saved. The entire line of the promise was preserved and all of this through Joseph. We see in, in the story of Joseph, God using him to preserve, to save the nation, to save the descendants of the promise. And very much the same way we see Christ having been betrayed by those closest to him, by his best of friends, and them turning his back on him. Then ultimately him, much like Joseph coming out of the pit, rose from the grave three days later. And it is through Christ that the people are saved, that we as the chosen ones of God are preserved, are saved. We see other examples of, of types of Christ in the Old Testament and stories such as that of David or that of Joshua or a, a whole host of others that we could list and see how the Old Testament is giving us in these stories not just pictures of what moral character looks like, though that is the case, not just pictures of what faithfulness and courage look like, though, though that is the case, but oftentimes we see pictures of what it is that Christ actually came to do and do to the fullest degree. We have here in our passage today one of the most important typological pictures of Christ given throughout the Old Testament. We see Christ as pictured through the story of Melchizedek the priest. So far throughout the book of Hebrews, the author has been systematically taking the most prominent figures and features and elements of Judaism. And he's been demonstrating how Jesus Christ is better than all of them. In fact, he is the fulfillment of all of these pictures that we see in Judaism. All of the shadows that are seen in the Old Covenant find their substance in Christ Jesus. This is a phrase that we've used over and over again through this study and will continue through on. We've seen all kinds of things. We've seen in chapters 1 and 2 how Christ is superior to the angels, the ones who had so much power and were instrumental in bringing the law. We've seen in chapter 3 how Jesus is superior to Moses, the one to whom God gave the law, the one through whom God led his people out of Egypt. We've seen in chapters 3 and 4 how Christ is the true Sabbath rest for his people. In chapter 4 also, we saw Jesus as the superior Joshua. And then we saw in chapter 5 how Jesus is superior to Aaron, the first priest of Israel. And we began our, our study, our examination of the priesthood of Christ there, and it is now extended further. And our attention now is being turned to see how Christ is not only the superior priest to Aaron, but also how his priesthood is superior than the whole priesthood throughout Israel's history. Christ's priesthood is greater. It is better. It is of a different kind. That is why my title for this week is a priest of a different color. Uh, because Christ's priesthood is 
not only much greater, but it is of a different kind than that of the Levitical priests that we will see from our text today. The Holy Spirit has been suggesting this for us already all throughout the book as, as Christ is, is pictured as a priest unlike the priests of Israel. Three times already, the author of Hebrews has said that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This was done intentionally as done to draw our attention to this, giving us the impression that Christ's priesthood, like Melchizedek's, is unique. His priesthood is not like that of the Levitical order, but is of another kind, of a superior kind, in fact, as our text tells us. Here the Holy Spirit begins to expound on that difference between Christ's priesthood, that being the one after the order of Melchizedek, and the, the, the Levitical priesthood. It begins to expound on this difference and enlightens us to the weighty things concerning Christ's priesthood, as we remember from our previous sermons the last two weeks, that these are things that are heavy and that are hard to understand and therefore not for those who are simply dipping their toes in for Christian, to Christianity, but those who fully accept and are indwelt with the Holy Spirit so that they might understand these things. That is the things into which we now dive, into which we now look, and we need the Holy Spirit's help as we do so. So if you would, bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord, we need your help. We need today our hearts to be uh, softened. We need our eyes to be opened. We need our hear ears to hear and to hear rightly. And we ask, Lord, that you would do that by the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see in our ears to understand, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The first two verses of our passage today open up with the story of Melchizedek. They essentially give us an overview of Genesis 14 in the few verses where this individual Melchizedek is introduced into the story, the occasion where Abraham first meets this man, followed by a brief discussion on his name in verse 2. Let's look at first verse 1 to begin with and consider the significance of this statement. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Stopping right there, it would be very easy for us to simply gloss over that and miss the significance of that statement. Especially if you are completely ignorant and unfamiliar to any Old Testament pictures, the Old Covenant um, setup, you would miss the fact that what he just said here does not make sense to his Jewish hearers. The fact that Melchizedek was a king, king of Salem, but also was priest of the Most High God. This did not happen in Israel. There was no such thing as a priest king or a king priest. These were two separate and intentionally distinct and separated positions. One was given authority to rule over Israel, while the other was given the authority by God to intercede for the people to God, to make sacrifices, to enter into the holy places. These two were not to be intermingled. And you might recall a few weeks ago when we talked about the story of Uzziah, we saw a picture of what happened when a king decided to usurp the role that was not given to him and take on the role of priest as Uzziah went in to 
take on the role of priest in the temple and, and because of his sinful, wicked act in taking on a role that was not his to take, the Lord struck him with leprosy and lived the rest of his days with leprosy. There are serious consequences in Israel for those who would try and usurp the role of priest and take on both of these roles. And yet what we see here is that Melchizedek was both of these roles. He was both king and priest. And we learn from the beginning of the book that not only that, he also, uh, Jesus Christ, is our new and better prophet. That no longer is the word of God delivered through prophets, no longer is it delivered through these men, but now it has been delivered through Jesus Christ. And so what we see here then as we consider Christ being Melchizedek in the fulfillment, we see that he is the trifecta of the old covenant roles that they are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The three most prominent major roles under the old covenant system in Israel were what? They were prophet, priest, and king. What we now see in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all three of these roles. He is the one through whom the word of God has come. He is the one who intercedes for the people on their behalf, making sacrifice and atonement for their sins. And he is the one who rules over the people as king, having authority, giving commands, acting out decrees. This alone gives us a beautiful picture of the Savior that we serve, the one who is prophet, priest, and king, the ultimate fulfillment of the old covenant found in Christ Jesus in these verses alone. But we go on to see in verses 1 and 2, it says, He met Abraham, he being Melchizedek, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. This is just a brief sentence. And yet within this sentence is essentially wrapped up what happened in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 14. And, and I thought about just letting you go read that on your own. But to be honest with you, the story in Genesis 14 is not much longer than this. So I'm going to have us go and read that. Genesis 14 verses 17 through 20. This is where we have Melchizedek and the entirety of his story in these few verses. Genesis chapter 14 Verses 17 through 20, where Moses writes this. After his return from the defeat of Chador Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveth, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave a tenth of everything. That is the entirety of the story of Melchizedek. That is it. We have in the book of Hebrews many verses Many references, many suggestions to this individual Melchizedek. You would think that he is a prominently figured person throughout the Old Testament. And yet what we see is that this is the only time his story is described. In fact, he's only even mentioned one other time throughout the Old Testament. And that is in a brief reference in Psalm 110. That the Messiah would come after the order of Melchizedek. 
This is all we are given. This very, very brief interaction. The author then of Hebrews goes on after describing this interaction where, where Abraham is coming back after the defeat of these kings. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, what is happening here is that these kings have made war against Sodom and Gomorrah. And who was living with this, in the city of Sodom? Lot's nephew, or, uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot. So Lot, in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this war, Lot and all of his family and all of his possessions are taken from the land. They are captured by these enemy kings. And when Abraham hears of this, he sees it as his duty to go and rescue Lot. And so Abraham, with a mere 318 of his men, go against these four kings and all of their people, all of their warriors, all of their armies, and utterly defeat them. The story in Genesis 14 says, after his return from the defeat. But what we see in Hebrews chapter 7 is that it's not so much described as a defeat as it is a slaughter. That Abraham and these 318 men slaughtered these kings. And indeed rescued Lot. And it is on his way back from this rescue that he interacts with Melchizedek, the priest king. But then the author goes on to give us more context, demonstrate for us the significance of Melchizedek even more. We have this interesting statement in verse 3 of our passage in Hebrews 7. It is a statement that has been largely misunderstood throughout church history by many. And by God's grace, hopefully we will understand it correctly today. But verse 3 of our passage says, he, talking about Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is a strange passage and one that has been interpreted in various ways and it has been taken to ascribe more to Melchizedek than I think he is deserving of, for he is just a man. But what we see in these verses is we see Although there was very little context given in Genesis, the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit inspiring him, sees the significance of this man in this story in Genesis and begins to expound upon why this matters and why it is that the story is told in such a way. Why is it that he has no father or mother or genealogy? A discussion on descendants to us seems very strange because for us, very little has to do with who we have descended from. And yet in the, in the Jewish context of that day, especially with regards to the priesthood, who you were descended from carried all kinds of significance. For who was able to be a priest in Israel? Not just anyone. You had to be a descendant of Levi. You had to be in the tribe of Levi in order to be a priest. Not only did you have to be in the tribe of Levi, but you had to be in the tribe of Levi and a descendant of Aaron if you were to act as the high priest. And not only that, but not just anyone among those men were qualified, but only those selected by God for that task. You see, lineage was extremely important for them. And so for them hearing this, that this Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, carried great significance to them because in spite of all this, he was the priest. He was priest of the most high God. And as we think about and consider how little is told to us 
about Melchizedek in the Old Testament, it ought to cause us to see the divine authorship of Scripture as we then begin to see in Hebrews this tiny little section of Scripture where very little is given is now expounded out and demonstrated how this is a picture of Christ. First is just a brief story of an interaction that Abraham had with this man and, and only a few details that are given. And then in Psalms, a simple statement declaring that the Messiah would come and, and would be according to the order of Melchizedek. But that's all the details were given about this, this individual. And I think that's intentional. The Holy Spirit specifically left out details about this man, such as who was his father, who was his, who was his mother, when did he live, when did he die. All of this is left out and is left out for a purpose so that we would see that he is a picture of Christ. No genealogy is listed for Melchizedek, not because he had no lineage. The point of not having a genealogy was not that he was miraculously just appeared or created uniquely unlike any other human being. No, he had a mother and father. The text is not trying to tell us here that he was not an actual human but it, the genealogy is not given so that we might see that like Christ, that is not significant to his priesthood. Then we have the statement that he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. And the, the statement here is not given to say that Melchizedek is immortal. For he was a man. He was a man. And like every other man throughout history, he lived and he died. But the reason this is given is simply to serve as a picture. It serves as a picture now that like Melchizedek in the story of Genesis, the priesthood of Christ has no end. It has no beginning. It has no end. It is eternal. We begin to clearly see the typological picture of Christ in Melchizedek. And the final piece of that evidence is given that, that Melchizedek is included in Genesis for this reason, to serve as a type of Christ, is given by the Last statement in our verse that he, resembling the Son of God, continues a priest forever. Many people have taken this verse, this line in this verse specifically to say that Melchizedek may have very well been a pre-incarnate Christ. That this may have been an appearance of Christ before his incarnation. And if, if that is what some people accept and believe, then you know that, that maybe is true. But I would argue otherwise. I would say that this is a man but a man specifically described in scripture as divinely inspired by God to serve as a picture for us of Christ's priesthood. You see, whenever the author Moses was writing, whenever the psalmist was writing in the Old Testament, they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't even fully understand the purpose of what they were writing. We do not see the full purpose of the inclusion of Melchizedek in the story until Hebrews until this book. If that doesn't clue us into the fact that the Bible is divinely inspired, that God is its true author, then I don't know what will. This is not to be understood as Christ pre-incarnate, but rather as a picture of what Christ will be, that he will be a priest that has a, an unending priesthood, that he will reign as priest king over his people 
as we move on, we remember that the author here is building an argument. He's building an argument for why it is that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than that of the tribe of Levi. Why his priesthood is greater than the one that Israel has known. And in order to make this case, he grabs onto this act of paying tithes as Abraham did to Melchizedek. And he says in verses 4 and 5, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Here he turns to the point that Abraham made tithes to Melchizedek, and he grabs onto this and he uses this to illustrate his point. The paying of tithes was done to show honor to the Lord, to recognize the calling of the Levites as the one who were called to enter the tabernacle and make sacrifices. The Israelites, the Jews, were very familiar with this. They understood the purpose for paying tithes to the Levitical priesthood, to the tribe of Levi. It was to show honor for who they were, for the role that God had given them, how it was a greater role. So then we see and understand the significance of the fact that Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. Where was the priesthood at the time of Abraham? It didn't exist. There was no institution of the priesthood. That did not come until Aaron, after the Exodus. And yet here, before Moses, before Aaron, before even the nation of Israel existed, Abraham was the nation of Israel. And here in this moment, we see the priesthood of Melchizedek, and it's demonstrated the greatness of that priesthood and that Abraham pays tithes to him. We see described here the idea that among Israel, the descendants of Abraham, they were giving tithes to one particular tribe, the priestly tribe, as a way of showing honor to God, blessing those tasked with and called with something higher than they. But this was all within the Israelite community, the blessed people, the nation to whom the promises of God has come. All of their tithes were given, but it all stayed within the nation of Israel. So then it gets even more amazing when the author says what he says in verses 6 and 7, where he says, But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Here we have this amazing and explicit statement that the priest Melchizedek was superior to the patriarch Abraham. And therefore that Christ is superior to Abraham for his priesthood is after that of Melchizedek. This is a bold statement to make to a group of Jews, to a group of Hebrews who have grown up seeing Abraham as their father, as one of the greatest Jews ever, for he was indeed the one through whom the promise came. This was Father Abraham. Now being told, they're being told that he was lesser than this guy Melchizedek. If you remember, there was a time in the book of John chapter 8 when Jesus made a very similar claim. When he said, before Abraham was, I am. Claiming to be greater than Abraham. And do you remember the Jews' response to this? They picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him. They were ready to kill him for this claim that he had made that he was greater than Abraham. It was no small thing to them 
to claim that Christ was greater than Abraham or that anyone is greater than Abraham. And yet that is the claim that the author of Hebrew makes, that Melchizedek, and therefore Christ, is greater than Abraham. For no one greater ever paid tithes to the lesser, but tithes are always paid from the lesser to the greater, from the inferior to the superior, so that he says it is beyond dispute. It is beyond dispute then that Melchizedek and his priesthood, his kingly priesthood, is greater than Abraham. And then in the last two verses, we see the final nail in the coffin coming when he says this. The final nail in the coffin. This is the mic drop at the end of the argument, demonstrating once and for all that the priesthood through the line of Levi was lesser than the priesthood of Melchizedek. When we read this in verses 9 and 10, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We have the argument being made here. Because Levi was still in the loins, was still, had not yet come from Abraham, but was still in his loins, his descendant, then when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, it was as though Levi through whom the Levitical order of priests came, was paying tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, this priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood you Jews have known always and forever throughout your history, that priesthood is a lesser priesthood than Melchizedek's. We see that demonstrated through this argument. This was a very similar argument that, that Paul uses in Romans chapter 5 when he connects us to Adam as our, as our father, as the one through whom we are represented because all descend from Adam. In the same way, all the Levitical priests and Levi himself who descended through Abraham, they are all subservient. They are all inferior to the Melchizedek priesthood as well. I want to sum up this argument being made here by the author and by me as the one preaching this text by pointing out the significant ways in which Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Because largely, that is the point being made here. It is sometimes hard for us to wrap our heads around, hard for us to try and grasp what all is going on here. Who is this guy, Melchizedek? What is, is meant when he says he has no genealogy? But the point being made here, summed up, is that Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood, greater than the Aaronic priesthood. Melchizedek's priesthood is greater, and Melchizedek is a pointer uh, to Christ. And I would like to point out how Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood in five specific ways that we see drawn directly from our text. And, and I'm drawing these observations uh, as they are made by John MacArthur in his commentary on Hebrews. I think they're a very helpful way to see and compare the priesthood of Melchizedek and therefore of Christ to that of the Levitical priesthood. There are five ways in which it is greater. First of all, Melchizedek's priesthood was universal, not national. We see this when he says, Melchizedek, priest of the most high God. This is an interesting statement that he uses here. Where he says, most high God, rather than, than priest of Yahweh, priest of Jehovah. He uses this phrase, most high God, to demonstrate that he is not just the God of the Jews. For in fact, Melchizedek was himself not a Jew. He was not descended from Abraham. And it is significant that this title for God is used rather than Yahweh. This is a demonstration of the fact that he is 
is a priest to the God that is over all. Not just the Jews, but the entire world. And this means everything for we Gentiles who now benefit from this priesthood, from Christ's priesthood. For he is priest not just to the Jews, but his priesthood is universal. The second way that his priesthood is greater is that his, his priesthood is a royal priesthood. The text tells us he is king of Salem. As we've already said, he is not just a priest, but he is a priest and a king. His is a royal priesthood. This was something that the Levitical priests, the kings of Israel, would have known full well was out of the question for them. There was no crossover between the priest and the king and the Levitical system. And yet what we see in Melchizedek is the two have become one to make this great and mighty royal priesthood. A priesthood with authority. The third way is that his priesthood was righteous and peaceful. There's one verse that we have not expounded on very much so far, but it's this in, uh, in verse 2, this statement. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of, king of peace. What we see both in Melchizedek's name and in the place in which he reigned, that his priesthood is one that is righteous and one that is peaceful. This is a priesthood unlike any other. For what priest was ever righteous? The answer is none. No priest was ever righteous. No priest was ever perfect. And yet what we see even in the very name of Melchizedek, as, as Sedek is the Hebrew word for righteous, we see built in even to his name that this priesthood is one of true righteousness and one that brings true peace as we see fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The fourth way his priesthood is superior is that his priesthood was personal. It was not hereditary. That Melchizedek did not receive his priesthood by being born to the right person, but rather was specifically ordained by God. This points us back again to the significance in the beginning of Hebrews where Christ was ordained, was set up as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not through a lineage, not because he was born to the right person, not because he had the right blood in his veins, but because he was specifically chosen and ordained by God in this way. And then finally, his priesthood is greater because his priesthood is eternal. That it is not temporary. As the text says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Here we see one of the greatest and, and most significant pictures of the priesthood of Christ. And that unlike the priesthood known to Israel, Christ is priest forever. He never dies, nor does he ever cease to be the right and good priest. But his is a lasting and eternal priesthood. We see and, and consider the the Melchizedekian priesthood. And we can sit here and we hear, okay, cool. So Melchizedek, he's greater than the Levitical priest. His priesthood was, was awesome. Okay, what does that mean for me? What is the application for us today? I would say that the reason that we are given this text today and the hope that we can find in it is that we can have a reason for hope, reason for confidence, because the picture that is given us in Melchizedek is that Christ's priesthood is a greater priesthood. It is one that is lasting, one that is eternal, one that has authority, one that we can trust. 
The fact that we have a priest that will never die, that will never cease in his work, that will never stop interceding for us, ought to bring us hope. For the moment there is a change in the priesthood for us, all hope is lost. We have no reason to hope or to think that that priest is the good and right and great high priest, for that was who Christ is and always will be. We can imagine just in an earthly example of, of the trust and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ when we consider just certain earthly things. If you are, are in here today and you have a particular mechanic that you especially love and go to, you go to that mechanic probably largely because you know you can trust that mechanic. See, here's the funny thing about mechanics and cars and, and having work done on your car is that if you're like me, that mechanic could tell you anything is wrong with your car and you would pay him to fix it, right? That mechanic could bring out any random piece of equipment or part and show it to you and say, this is broken and we need to fix it on your car. He could even take me and show me my engine and say, do you see the problem? And I would say, no, but I trust you. You know, if you say it's broken, I'll give you the money, you fix it. And yet we know that this has led and will always lead to people being taken advantage of by those who are untrustworthy. So when you find a mechanic who is trustworthy, you, you stick with that mechanic, do you not? I remember our mechanic who we have had for some time and trusted for a long time for a while got out of the business. He, he owned his own shop and he would always do our work for us. We, he was trustworthy. He was good to us. And then he quit. And man, we were left going, what now? Who do we go to? Who do we trust? It's a, it's a major thing to, to tr put your trust in someone so implicitly. Now imagine that a priest were to retire or a priest were to die and you were to have a new priest, someone who was going to intercede between you and God. And imagine how scary that would be that you are now, as a people, placing your trust in a new priest that you do not know, that you do not know if you can trust. The good news for us in here today is that the priesthood that we have in Jesus Christ is one that will last for eternity. One that is good, one that is final, who has made sacrifices like no other priest has made, who has interceded like no other priest has interceded, who has interceded in such a way that he is not just going into the Holy of Holies, but he is going to bring us into that place with him. This is our high priest. We need a high priest greater than the Levitical priesthood, and we have been granted one in Christ Jesus, one after a different kind, one after the order of Melchizedek. And in that we can take hope, and that we can take heart, that we have a great high priest that is unlike the priests we see in the Old Testament. Not that they were all just a bunch of wicked good-for-nothings. That's not, the, that's not the, the issue. The issue is that there was a hundred of them. There were constantly new priests that were needed. What was never available, what was never there for the people under the old covenant was a lasting sense of security in their high priest. That is something that we now enjoy in Christ Jesus. A priesthood that is good, that is righteous, that is lasting for all of eternity, and one that is eternal, one that is universal. It's the priesthood that we need, and it is found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.